When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Hi, this is F. Limbless Jr., and you're listening to TV Confidential. When he walked into a room, the room would light up one way or the other. Ed Robertson, along with her guest Gregory Orr, Gregory Orr, son of William T. Orr, the original head of television production at Warner Brothers Pictures, and the grandfather of Warner Brothers co-founder Jack L. Warner. The director's cut of Greg's 1993 documentary, Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, now available and includes more than 40 minutes of new material, all in high definition. The director's cut of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, is available for streaming on demand on all major platforms. You can also find it wherever DVDs are sold, including MovieZing, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August, and you'll receive a 10% discount off your purchase. MovieZing, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Before we went to break, we were talking to Greg about his dad, Bill Orr, and some of the ways in which Warner Brothers perfected the art of producing hour-long television shows during the 10 years in which Bill Orr ran the television division at Warner's. The one interesting thing about Jack Warner in television is that Jack Warner was sort of dragged into saying okay to television because they weren't filming many movies on the lot. Mm-hmm. And the movie industry was in real trouble for content, and this was a way to make money, but he had no real interest in television. He thought it was a competitor to movies. He really loved the big screen experience. And my father told me that he would not allow a TV set to be used as a piece of furniture mm-hmm. <laughs> in a movie. Yep. They just didn't exist. And uh, with the first uh, uh, show, Warner Brothers Presents, I, I'm not sure which one, one, which one went on first, whether it was Cheyenne or another one. But my father said, well, you want to see the, uh, the rough cut? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it, said my grandfather. And now they said, well, we have the finished cut. We're going to ship it to the uh, network soon. Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And then he, he calls up my father and says, okay, I'm ready to see that first program. It's too late, Chief. It's already gone to the network. <laughs> and he never saw any of the shows before they went off to ABC. Yeah. So it's like, all right, that's that department. It's making me money. That's great. But I'm not really that interested. Yeah, so I, I think I line. think that first hour-long film was a Cheyenne. But this is another thing. Warner Brothers pretty much invented the wheel format because the first the first Warner Brothers show for ABC was a wheel show. Uh, as, as you just mentioned, it was called Warner Brothers Presents. I think one week it was Cheyenne, one week it was Casablanca. And King's Row. And King's one. Row, right. And of, of the three, only Cheyenne caught on, but that was, that was you know, 55. That was 
that was around the time when everybody wanted to watch westerns. So, <laughs> well, they didn't in the theater. It's funny because the westerns in the movie theaters were dying out, but yeah. for some reason they were, or they modernized it a bit. They did something to it that made it very interesting for viewers at home, and it was very popular. They're back. I mean, there's so many westerns made at Warner Brothers during that time. You know, Bronco and Sugarfoot and The Lawman and. Uh, I've heard stories that they're shooting back to back. A horse from one show runs right past one camera and into the other yep. camera. So yeah, churning this out, it was it was definitely a factory. But then changes happened too. I mean, there was pressure on the studios from the government, who was concerned about violence. Now, I mean, these were different kinds of shows than what people had been used to. I mean, out of New York, all that live television, sort of hasteful television, I call it, coming out of live TV in New York. This was a grittier kind of uh, more violent prone action. And they knew it helped the viewership to have action. And also it was better if they were gonna sell it overseas because you know, you don't have to depend on the dialogue so much, you depend on action. And I know my father had to appear to Senate hearings about violence in television and defend Warner Brothers as not being overly violent. So uh, that was part of the pressure that comes with any kind of new medium. Like, Yes, how is it influencing the public? And juvenile delinquency was a big concern. They might have been half right. Now you think about it, depending <laughs> what you watch too much of when young. But uh, yeah, a lot was changing then. It was it was like the early days of movies where you had to adapt, and and finally that that formula ran out of steam uh, at some point. And uh, Warner Brothers was not making TV for quite a while after my father left. They had uh, the FBI show, which came from Quinn Martin Productions. Mm-hmm. And uh, something else, Jack Webb had taken over the studio TV department at one point yeah. and was unceremoniously fired after about 10 months. Mm-hmm. And they were left with one show or two shows. They were left with 77 Sunset Strip, which he had changed completely. So it was interesting to sort of see the progression of what had been a very hot commodity with, uh, I don't know, I think they had nine, nine shows on a week at one point. Yeah, it was, as, as I say, between Warner Brothers Television and Disney Television, that was pretty much 50% of ABC's primetime lineup back in the 1950s. Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., speaking of 77 Sunset Strip and the FBI, he is the narrator um, as well as one of the on-screen uh, commentators of Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, the 1993 documentary by Gregory Orr that has been remastered, re-edited, and re-released in its director's cut form. It's about 140 minutes. It is the movie that Greg had originally wanted to make, but uh, for one reason or another had never been seen in its entirety into the United, in, in the United States until now. Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, available now streaming on demand. All major platforms also available DVD through outlets such as MovieZing.com, Z-Y-N-G, MovieZing.com. Dot com. Use promo code JACK through the end of August, and you'll receive a 10% discount off your purchase, moviesing.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item. Summertime is in full swing, and if you have dry skin, you know what happens when the weather gets warmer. More visible lines and dullness. Fortunately, our friends at Ibu Beauty can help. Their Super Duo Serum and Moisturizer is all you need this summer for the perfect glow. Check them out ebubeauty.com that's y-i-b-u beauty.com or at ebubeauty on Instagram use customer code ebu50 now at checkout and receive 50% off your first order hi everybody this is Ruta Lee and you're listening to TV Confidential 
just a couple more questions for now. When the movie becomes available in Blu-ray, which hopefully it will be later in the year, I'd like to have you back and have another conversation about Jack Warner and some of the other things you've done as a filmmaker as well. But let's talk a little bit about the studio system. Now, I, I've been lucky enough to talk to a few actors who came of age during the last decade of the studio system. And depending on who you talk to, you either hated it or fought it, James Garner, or you embraced it because it was like being paid to go to school and you became immersed in all aspects of filmmaking and all kinds of roles as you were learning your craft as an actor. But you had placed your career in the studio's hands. Yeah. And for some people, that was fine. They, they got what they wanted out of that system. It partly depends on your temperament, I suppose. And if they like you enough to give you good roles. I mean, I heard from somebody that in the old days, actually producers and directors would get tired of seeing the same people in their films. You know, Alan Hale was always showing up. <laughs> someone said, someone said he, he, went to a, he went to a screening of, of a movie, a new movie, a preview. And there in the preview uh, was Alan Hale in the film you're previewing. There in the film you're going to be showing that's actually on the marquee is Alan Hale. And in the coming attractions is Alan Hale. So, you know, people we think of as really great supporting actors in all these movies now, the writers and producers and directors wanted new, fresh talent, but they had a stable of, of talent that they tried to bring in. You paid them X amount a week and you put them in whatever you wanted to. And that, and that was the model for television to take the old studio contract system, which had basically sort of broken up uh, because of uh, Olivia de Havilland's court action, that you couldn't have these ongoing contracts beyond seven years. Um, but they tried to do it, or they did do it, with the, uh, the TV production. So uh, you built a stable of stars, and you put them in stuff whether they want to do it or not. And there's lots of memos to Jack Warner even from Humphrey Bogart, like, oh, my God, do I have to do this movie? You know, <laughs> yes, you have to. You all, we all have to pull our own weight here and all that nonsense, you know. It's for the company. It's good, good of everybody. But, um, I mean, Garner, if he really felt he could have a career outside of doing Maverick, and he did, he was right. Yeah. But there are other people, like Clint Walker, who felt he could have a big career outside of uh, Cheyenne, and he, he didn't. He made movies, but he never had a, a big success. Right. As Cheyenne. He did not have that it factor that jumped off the page the way Jim Garner did. Right. That was bigger than the role he, he yeah. was known that he got started in. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that just goes to the type of person you're dealing with, the actor, the writer, the director. So it's, you know, Hollywood's tough. The film industry is tough. It just it needs people. It uses people. Yeah. And if you can't hang in there, it's, it's it says goodbye. Maybe it says it nicely, maybe not. And uh, it looks for somebody else. So. so I think that happened definitely in the television division. On the other hand, there are at least two actors who, who told me this. One was uh, Robert Colbert, who he's best known for the time tunnel, but he's also the, the actor who played uh, Mavericks, heretofore untalked about Brother Brent. And he was cast simply because he was tall and he kind of looked like James Garner. And the studio was hoping, okay, nobody will know, nobody will tell the difference. But of course, he. But but anyway, um, both Robert Colbert and uh, William Reynolds told me there was an esprit de corps amongst actors, amongst amongst the, maybe not all actors, but a lot of actors at the studio system, and that we're all on the same page, we're all on the same team, 
and there is a willingness to um, it would depend on what show you're working on, but sometimes if you have a director who's willing to go for it, you may say, okay, I played this last week on Cheyenne. You played this last week on 77. Why don't we switch parts and see what happens? And they would talk to the director, and if the director didn't have a problem with it, they'd do it. You couldn't always do that today. No, the audience is so... We're sort of in a fan culture now, which doesn't didn't quite exist in the same degree. So I think they get tired of doing the same thing. There was a formula. Ultimately, you sort of have to have one yeah. when you're making 39 or 36 shows a year. And uh, so if there's any chance to sort of have a little fun, you had to keep a control over it. Like, let's not have too much fun here yeah. inside baseball, you know, winking all the time. Mm -hmm. But they definitely got a chance to play around a little bit with, with the form. And uh, it's, it's probably one of the things that audiences appreciate more now. Final question for now, because as I said, I'd like to have you back later on in the year, if that's doable. If there's one takeaway that you want audiences to get when they watch Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul. What would that be, Greg? Well, it's that great line in Indiana Jones where it says, what are you doing next? I don't know. We're just making it up as I go along. <laughs> and it was a whole industry making it up as it went along. And I think you see that, that this was an industry that caught the imagination of the entire world. It was dependent on a machine, Thomas Edison's camera, and then others getting into making a projector and the, and the theater itself and so on and so forth. It was an invention. And then people had to decide what to do with it. And we have a whole industry now of storytelling and giant movies and worldwide cinema and a worldwide language and worldwide movie stars that can be traced, you know, a little over 100 years ago to those early days of figuring out what do we do with this new invention? How do we make money off it? <laughs> and not only that, what is it that captures our imagination, our hearts? And obviously the people who really are involved in the movie industry, even in support positions, even in marketing and so forth. I was listening to the marketing head for Warner Brothers talking about Barbie. They love movies. And this is a movie about a businessman who loved making movies. And he loved the people who made movies for him. And it changes fast, and it's a history lesson as well as an entertainment. So I'd love people just to see, oh, this is how I – this is – how the thing I take for granted when I stream or watch television or go to the theater, this is how it all began and sustained itself for those first 50, 60 years. And it's the story of how Jack Warner stayed, I mean, stayed on top for 50 years, which is not, so, I don't think, in, I, I don't think that's something anybody else can do again. No, and what kind of personality it took with all his problems, and he had problems, what, what kind of personality <laughs> let him be buoyant? He kept floating to the surface. Yeah. No matter how much events or himself pushed him down, he kept bobbing up and, and uh, you know, turning in a new movie that actually did well and is appreciated now. So it's a, I think it's just a great story of a very unusual kind of guy who, you know, in an industry that affects us all. And it's an immigrant story. I mean, that, that's a classic story arc right there. It's an immigrant story. It's a great advertisement for that, that you don't know where the talent will come from. Yeah. And it could be from a small town in Poland, in a shtetl in Poland, that ends up changing the world. And uh, we should keep that in mind in terms of where are we going to get our, the best and the brightest from. Jack L. Warner, The Last Mogul, now available on DVD, moviezing.com, Z-Y-N-G, moviezing.com. Type in promo code JACK between now and the end of August, and you'll receive 
10% off your DVD purchase through MovieZing.com. Also available streaming on demand, many platforms. Gregory Orr, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking to you again. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Ed. The next edition of TV Confidential will air next week on this station at the usual time. We hope you join us for that. In the meantime, Ed Robertson, back for Tony Figueroa, Donna Allen, Phil Grice, and Greg Erebar. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next time on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.